0: Anyway, um, we've been preaching through the Gospel of John from John chapter seventeen, up we'll go right up into chapter twenty one, uh, as we focus on the events of Easter. And so today we're continuing that. So let's open up in prayer because we're not just listening to me, we're hoping that God actually speaks to us, that he reveals to us the wonder of the truth of what he has done, and that we would respond rightly to him. So we just ask that God would do that in our time together. Heavenly Father. Uh, we thank you that Easter isn't just a time of Cadbury cream eggs, as good as they are, but Lord, it is a a time that is where we remember. It is a time, it is a marked celebration of the greatest event in all history. Not just in biblical history, but in all history. Where the very problem that affected all of mankind, our separation from a relationship with our creator God because of our sin, yet you have entered into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, bore out the penalty for our sin on our behalf on the cross that we might come to know you, that we might trust in Jesus and that we might live rightly as he he is our king again. Uh, Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning that people would not hear just the ideas or thoughts of Steve uh, these are. this is your word, this is your book. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would achieve your purposes as you, by your spirit, that you would fill us with a sense of aura for what you have done, how you've done it, but also to what it demands of us as we respond to you. So Lord, we pray that we would not only learn, but most of all, that we would be changed and changed in a way that honors you. Ask in Jesus' name, amen. One of the many things that I find quite annoying about the fact that I'm not God and just am a finite human being, there you go, so if you're visiting you think, is this church a cult? You can, you can tick the box, did the guy at the front say he's God? He said no, there you okay. go, he's not, you can rip, rule that one out. But one thing that's difficult as a finite human being is you cannot guarantee that anything that you set out to do will actually happen even the, something that you seems to be entirely within your control, things can happen and prevent those things from coming to pass. And sometimes that's tough, isn't it? Like sometimes you might have your heart so set on something and it seems so definite that it's going to happen, but things happen outside of our control and they don't work out. Now, I remember one, I don't know if it was late 2010 or early 2011, but um, Sarah and I got married in March 2011, and sometime before then, can't remember the exact timing of it, probably end of 2010, we were looking at houses in Mafra. And we looked at a few houses, and then we got got into one, which is the house we ended up um, living in, and we are like, this is the one, and just so Sarah can have a little little cry, there's there's our little house there in Mafra. And we were so set, this is the one, this is perfect for what we need, this is perfect for ministry, the way it's sort of divided, there's two ends of the house, so I can do churchy things and Sarah can still go to sleep and all those types of things. And we were like, yep, this is the one we want. However, we were also very dependent upon family for finances to to be able to, to purchase this house. Now, anyone who knows my dad, he's a very generous man. But he's also very careful about how he uses his money, and uh, we were kind of like, "Yeah, this is the one, this is the one, the one." And Dad's kind of like, nah, no, stop and think about it. What about this? What about this?" And yeah, Paula's like, "No, no, don't, don't, don't take this away from us." Now, if we're going to be fair, any goal that I have or anything that I aim to do, I can guarantee not all of them will be the perfect will of God. So it's probably a good thing that I don't get everything that I that I set out for and everything that I want. But one thing is painfully clear. Anything which God sets out to accomplish, there is no greater authority that can hinder it. He achieves everything He sets out to achieve. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 115 Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Every single thing he desires and sets out to do, he accomplishes. And it makes sense that he does because if something was to stand in the way of God and his purposes, that would need to be something greater than God, wouldn't it? And there is no higher authority than God who created all things. But Jesus' death and resurrection it is the central core of the Christian faith. Like even the Old Testament prophets spoke of the exact nature of the way in which Jesus would die a death on our behalf to pay the price for sin. But when we look through the reading that we've just had, sometimes it looks like everything's working against it as though this could never potentially happen. You've got Pilate who's the guy with the authority to have Jesus crucified and he just keeps saying, I find no guilt in him. And then on the other hand, you've got the religious leaders who last week we saw didn't have much of a claim. This week come up with a claim which has got nothing to do with breaking Roman law. Yet none of these things that appear to work entirely against the plan hinder God achieving that plan. So we're continuing through chapters 17 to 21 of John's Gospel which will take us up to Easter and also the three Sundays beyond that. And today is kind of like part two of what we looked at last week because we started looking at Pilate uh, and Jesus and his trial before Pilate last week where it began where they'd taken him from Caiaphas's house where they'd asked him questions, the religious leaders had Jesus and they asked him, are you the Christ? And while in this one sense he kind of didn't answer, he did answer in a very clear way. He actually says, Soon you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father. Which he takes two significant quotes from the Old Testament, from Daniel seven thirteen to 14, the idea of the Son of Man, which was very intimately tied up with this idea of the Messiah. And also from Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So in a sense, he made a very clear statement about who he was. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate, it says early in the morning, this is something they're keen to get done. Are they bringing him there just to get a trial, to find out whether or not he's guilty? We saw through the interactions last week, they came there not so much with a trial, but with a set outcome. Because at one point during that interaction, Pilate says to them, you take him, you sort him out. And their response is, we do not have the right to execute him. In other words, You do it because we want him dead. And we want him dead the way you do it because you do it really cruel and nasty and we want to see it happen that way. It was very much the plan right from the beginning. From the Jewish leaders, this was the outcome they wanted. But more importantly, before it was even an idea in the Jewish leaders' minds, it was in the mind of God, even before the foundation of the world, this was how Jesus was to bear the price for mankind's sin. Last week we also saw the Jewish leaders throughout the Gospels. This is not the first time that they've planned it. We see a number of attempts to to arrest and have Jesus killed. But all the time we see this little phrase, but the hour had not yet come. So God is so sovereign in the way in which he orchestrates and carries out his will and purposes, even man cannot speed up or change the timing of those things. This is God's appointed time. Now is the hour has come. Last week we saw the first of the times Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And he even says, you know, we've got this custom at Passover, we released to you one of your prisoners. And he thinks, here I'm going to satisfy them. If I, if I release Jesus, A, I get rid of him because I don't think there's any reason why I should do anything to him. But also by doing so, calling him a prisoner means he's declaring him guilty. and would hope that I'd be pretty, um, satisfied with that. But what was clear last week and what was very clear as we look at this uh, this verses this morning, the Jewish leaders had one outcome in mind and they were not going to give up until that outcome was fulfilled, that Jesus would die on a cross. Today, to sort of break it up into verses 1 to 11, where we see Pilate making basically every effort to release Jesus. And then verses 12 to 16... The one charge that the Jewish leaders finally pull out that turns everything upside down. We actually looked at this section last week in our Monday night community group and someone said, as we read through a part, it said, that sounds a little bit odd and I'll just, I'll just show you that part. Luke 23 verses 13 to 16. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Whereas our account here in John talks about how how he was sent to be flogged. Seems a little bit strange how he is, doesn't it? Pilate said, there's nothing wrong, this guy's done nothing. However, we're going to give him a flogging anyway. And those who've seen The Passion of the Christ, I think, believe Samuel said his community group going to be watching that. Now, it was a gruesome thing. It wasn't something minor that happened to Jesus. So why would he even entertain that if he thought there was nothing wrong with him? Because he could see very clearly the Jewish leaders wanted something significant done about this guy. Yet Pilate desired very strongly to release him. He thought, if I do this, they'll be happy then I can let him go. Specifically, it says that here in Luke's account. I will therefore punish him and release him. Now, a Roman flogging wasn't a minor thing. Now, the, the whip, that's obviously not the whip, nor is it the full details. They'd usually have bits of rock, little bits of metal, bits of glass in it. So it would actually tear apart at the bank. See, those who are unfortunate enough to watch the Passion of Christ and see those scenes, it was gruesome. It, it was not dealt with in a minor way. But not only was that, it seems the soldiers too want to add a bit of mockery to Jesus. We see there in verses 2 and 3, they twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now, the Romans and the Jews didn't have great relationships. They didn't have a great respect for one another. So as they're doing this, I think there's two parts of it. One, they're making a mockery of Jesus. But then on the other hand, they're making a mockery of the whole Jewish religion. They're saying, this is your God. look at how good he is and look what we are doing to him. But there's an irony in there as well. Here they are calling Jesus king. And he truly was the king. Matthew and Mark's gospel tells us that they even, they bow down, they bow down to worship before him. And while they're doing that in a mocking sense, we're told in Philippians 2 and also Carl's reminders from Romans 14, one day every knee will bow before him and there won't be any mockery about it because he is truly the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Now for the second time in verse 4, Pilate says again, I find no guilt in him. Or third time if you include the reading that we just had from Luke's gospel as well. And so he presents Jesus before the people. He's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been mocked, he's been spat upon and he presents him before the people and says, Behold the man. Take a look at Jesus. Look what it has done to him. This one who I have declared has done nothing wrong. And look at the way in which he's been so brutally marred. Now he's not saying it in a sense of, behold, the man, so he's saying, Look at this guy, he's the but he's saying, Look at this. Look at what we've done to him. This man who is innocent. He kind of hopes that the Jewish leaders be satisfied to see Jesus so brutally beaten. You'd think there'd be some sort of sympathy on that. We know he's done nothing wrong, but look what's happened. Imagine seeing Jesus like that. Knowing he's entirely innocent. Back torn apart by these whips. Yet the response of the religious leaders was this. When they saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take them yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Yet another time, no guilt. So they've seen that. They're not satisfied. Anything other than crucifixion, they're not letting go of. Now, Pilate's not an old softy. He's not kind of like, oh, I feel sorry for him. I want to let him go. He's got no issue whatsoever in crucifying a Jewish man. But what he does say, he wants nothing to do with it. He says, you take him, you crucify him. Now that kind of ruins their claims we looked at last week that we don't have the permission to, to, cru, to crucify. Pilate just said, you go to it. Now what's an interesting thing is last week they didn't really have much by way of charges. Now they've come up with something. They want a Roman execution and the accusation they bring has got nothing to do with breaking Roman law. They say, we've got a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. Pilate and the emperor don't care in the least whether or not he's done that. But it's also a very clear confession on behalf of the religious leaders that Jesus wasn't guilty of breaking any Roman law. Yet this is what the plan of God is to happen. He wants him to die this way. Pilate doesn't want to do it. He's not guilty of anything to cause him to do it. And it appears that the law to which they appeal to so it appears coming from Jewish scriptures coming from Leviticus twenty four sixteen. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death But it gives you some details All the congregation shall stone him the sojourner as well as the native when he blasphemes the name he shall be put to death So here they are trying to be all religious and say we've got a law and according to this he should die but you now, what it says? It doesn't say Raymond should crucify him. It says you, the people, should should stone him. So they're not so faithful to their to their religious systems, after all, are they? That's the accusation all along that they didn't like about Jesus: the fact that he claimed to be God, the fact that he claimed to be equal with God. It's the very first thing that stirred them up. We see back in chapter five. This was why Jesus, the Jews, were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, up until now, Pilate's been pretty, had his heart pretty set on releasing, hasn't he? I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. He tried to release him. And on top of all of that, things working against us, then you got Pilate's wife to consider. So you see, her. She puts her little bit in, in Matthew's Gospel in 27.19. Besides, while he, that's Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate doesn't want to do it. He says he's innocent, wants to release him. Even his wife says, don't do anything to this guy. Odds are stacked against it, this ever happening. But now this claim has come out that he's claimed to be the son of God, Pilate thinks, maybe this is worth asking questions about. Because he knows, we mentioned last week, the Emperor Tiberius, he was a bit of a paranoid psyche. He was so worried that someone else might rise up and take over his position, that anyone who looked like they were starting to rise any degree of power or significance, he wanted them out. So Pilate asked him, where did you come from? Now the scriptures don't tell us why Jesus didn't specifically answer I mean, certainly in his in his ministry he's been very clear about who he is and where he's come from but it also now is the time where things are to happen. But Pilate's a bit baffled by silence, isn't he? This is the way Pilate puts the question to him and says, you won't speak to me. Do you not know that I've got the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? In other words, speak up. Your life is in my hand, the fate of what happens to you. I'm the one who holds the power here. You better say something. Now, we've all met people who are in a position of authority. There's always someone in those positions who just loved the power. They can say, you know what? I've got the power. I could do this to you or I could do this to you. Can't imagine Pilate was particularly impressed with Jesus' response. Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you is, has the, committed the greater sin. Now, there's two statements made to two separate groups that really put them into their place. Firstly, to Pilate, he says, you would have no authority if it wasn't given to you. In other words, you're nothing. The only reason why you're here is because God's put you in this position. And it's not just Pilate that he makes a claim against. This idea of, of religious and political leaders being appointed there by God, it's a, it's a universal thing. See in Romans, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. But it's not just Pilate he puts into right perspective, also the Jewish leaders. He says, but the one who has handed me over to you has committed the greater sin. The word greater implies there is a lesser, so he's not saying, Pilate, you're, you're without responsibility. But it seems that he's focusing more particularly on the high priest Caiaphas, who is the, one of the religious leaders, one who should have identified who Jesus truly was, yet he has handed him over to be crucified, has committed the greatest sin. You think at this point in time, Pilate's going to want to change his mind, isn't he? Pilate said, you know what? Your life is in my control. I can do this and that. And Jesus says, no, you can't. You're just a little little prawn. God's the one who does what he wants to do. There's been the claim about the son of God and he hasn't answered. But what does verse 12 say? Verse 12 says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. You're starting to see the repetition here? Pilate says he's not, not guilty. He wants to release him. But just as quickly it says from then on, the from then on doesn't seem to last very long. The Jewish leaders pull out a claim that changes everything. Right after it says the Pilate sought to release him, the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they're saying, you know the emperor guy? You know the only gets really paranoid if someone starts to rise up. If you let this guy who's claiming to be a king, if you let this guy who's claiming to be the son of God go, he's gonna be pretty upset with you for letting this sort of thing go on. Saying you're not Caesar's friend because Caesar wouldn't want that done. Up until this very moment, Pilate has been very resolute. No guilt. I want to release him. But when it becomes a, a question of these people keep insisting, plus the fact that now his own life's under threat, the suggestion is, if you let this guy go, we're going to let the emperor know and he's going to come after you. So now it actually starts to affect his own life. Things turn around dramatically. Dramatically. Now imagine if high priests were into the high fives they'd they'd be like high fives all around a point in time they're like, check mate, you got him a ripper there. Because as soon as these words are spoken it turns from being so concerned that Jesus has no guilt want to set him free. As soon as this is leveled the idea that his own life could be under threat if he was to let him go Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out sat down on the judgment seat. And made his judgment Just like that From so definite This isn't going to happen One thing is said Everything changes course As far as he's concerned It's better that Jesus is crucified Than to have his own life threatened Again like last week Where it makes references to Passover People think hang on where does this all fit in I thought Jesus has already celebrated Passover With the people we noted last week that Luke 22 associates Passover with the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a whole week event and actually equates them using them the same terms of. But in verse 14, where it speaks about the day of preparation of Passover, does not mean the day of preparation for Passover. The day of preparation was a name given to Yef Friday, the day before the Sabbath. We know the Sabbath was a day that they would rest and on the Friday they would do things to prepare so they didn't have to do those work things on the Sabbath. We see Mark clarify that in Mark fifteen forty-two when he says, and the evening came since it was the day of preparation and he tells you what that is. That is the day before the Sabbath. It's now the sixth hour which is roughly midday by our timing because they had measured the, the time from when the sun came up. And you can't help but wonder How frustrated must have Pilate been? Because you can see Pilate didn't want this guy to be crucified. He doesn't like the Jews. He has adamantly fought giving them what they want. And all of a sudden they've produced something that's made them have to change their mind. Not only that, here is the one claiming, I'm the one in control. I can do this. I can do that. And Jesus puts him in a place. and says, no, you're not. God's the one who does what he wants. You know, Roman and Jewish relationships were never particularly good But you can imagine at this point in time He's probably a little bit bitter That they've made him backflip on something he didn't want to do And so he actually taunts them a little bit He says to the Jews Behold your king The very thing that they found blasphemous The very thing that they hated He says here is your king I mean it's a true statement He, he was their king But it's something they certainly didn't want to hear The true king was before them. This is the king, the king of kings. And how do the people, how do the religious leaders respond when they're presented with their king? They say, away with him. We don't want nothing to do with him. He's not our king. It's a pretty sad moment, isn't it? That are people who are so proud of their religiosity, of their position... When presented with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the fulfilment of everything they'd ever hoped for, and they say, we don't want him. Get rid of him. I find Easter sometimes can be a sad time as well, in a very similar regard. Now, it's, a, it's a time when people feel like they need to pay the dues, they're obligated maybe to turn up to church. Because, you know, it's what you do, it's, it's Easter or Christmas. Yet they're presented with the King of Kings, and after Good Friday and Easter Sunday, until until it comes Christmas, they like, don't want anything to do with him. He's not my King. I don't want to live with him as my King. A Christian isn't someone who's just gone to church a few times. A Christian is someone who recognizes that they are a sinner, that Jesus is the King of Kings, that God is the Creator to whom is worthy of all honor. That we should honour him as God and as king. That we are deserving of the punishment of death. That Jesus paid the price for our sin. And that by trusting in him, not only has he dealt entirely with the consequences of our sin... But also we turn to him instead of being deciding that we're the king, that we're going to do our own thing, that we rightly start to think, well, he is the true king. I'm going to live in such a way that represents that he is my king, that I'm going to serve him. He's first. Because it's a fair statement. If you reject Jesus as king, you're probably not in the kingdom. Although Pilate's intention is probably again to taunt he almost gives them a second chance in verse 15. After they say away with him, he says, shall I crucify your king? Well, we know they're not going to change their mind. We've seen how keen they've been pursuing it up to this point in time. But the response of the chief priest is probably the most shocking and damning of all things they ever say during this encounter. You know, it's one thing to say, we don't want Jesus away with this guy, but look what they say in verse 15. Their response is, shall we crucify your king? They say, we have no king but Caesar. So they're not just, they're not just saying that Jesus isn't our king. They say, we have one king, we have one king alone, and that is the emperor. Now, if you remember back into 1 Samuel when the ancient Israelites asked for a king, what was the concern that was raised? God says, you have asked for a king, but I was your king. And now they're saying, God's not even our king. We've got one king, it's the emperor. We'll say whatever you want, just crucify this guy. We'll even deny God to get it done. But when they say we have no king but Caesar, I think that statement was probably truer than they realised it was. In earlier interactions, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. came not of my accord, but he sent me. The ultimate rejection has happened. But it's not just a sad or a tragic ending. It happened exactly as God planned and exactly as Jesus declared that it would. In Luke 9.22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. No coincidence is what's going on here. This was the plan of God unfolding before our eyes. The deal is done, and so it says that now it's been it's all been approved. Verse sixteen: So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. On a casual reading, you could misunderstand that, couldn't you? When it says he delivered him over to them to be crucified, to think, hang on, did the Romans give them to the Jews to crucify him like they said earlier? Yet the rest of the Bible and all history says. Jesus was crucified under Pilate. Interesting note from the uh, Engaging in Islam seminars on Friday. eh? Islam says Jesus did not die, despite the fact that even non-Christian sources say that Jesus did die under Pilate. Luke clarifies what he actually means by this. Puts it in probably a bit clearer language. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So when he says he handed him over to them to be crucified, basically saying, Pilate says, this isn't what I want to do, this is what you want, eventually he just gives them what they've been asking for. But it's what's very clear throughout these chapters, it's not what he thought that Jesus deserved, and it's not what Herod thought he deserved. It's a bit of a drama, isn't it? Here we know the central events of Christianity. Look, Jesus must die on a cross, yet the people who are required to make that happen, all odds are against that happening. The person with authority, Pilate, four times we have, I find no guilt. Three times says, and I seek to release him. His wife says, stay out of it. So on a human level, you think, well, you can rule Pilate out. He's not going to get it done. But then on the level of the religious leaders, the main claim that they bring against him has got nothing to do with breaking Roman law to get a Roman punishment. It was a violation of a Jewish law, as they thought, if they were correct Um But they weren't correct about who Jesus was. What he should have happened is he should have been stained by the people. You you couldn't ask for a more serious hindrance to the plan of God than the person who got the authority doesn't want to do it and the people who want to bring the accusation is not an accusation that has an end goal of what they want. But this is how Jesus dies because this is how God wanted him to die. The, The plans of man will never hinder The work of God and the plans of God. i said before, we don't get everything that we plan because we're not God. We don't have all authority over all things. There's all sorts of things that we pursue that we just don't get. But the same thing can never be said of God. Every single thing he sets out to achieve, he achieves in its entirety. Now, that should be a comfort to us. That means that when he says he came to pay the price for sin, he dealt with it. Like, I know we all go through times where we have moments of guilt about something we've done either beforehand or even something we might do in the future. And we think, does Jesus still, am I still saved? Has Jesus paid enough? Everything he sets out to do, he does in its entirety. Who's going to hinder him? What's going to stop him? Is Satan gonna stop him? I mean, after all, you see in the scriptures, Satan entered into Judas' heart that he might betray Jesus. From Satan's perspective, he's like, here, Gail, I've got the ultimate thing. I get this guy crucified, wipe him out. Is it, what, what do we know? Jesus was intended, was supposed to be crucified. This was the plan of God. And it, and then as he raised on the third day, demonstrate his power over Satan, over death, over sin. Nothing stands in his way. And because he can and does achieve every single thing that he sets out to achieve, we can have absolute certainty that everything he promises he will do for us in our future, he will do. You don't need to worry, oh, you know, will, will he accept me? If you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, if he's, you're forgiven your sin, you will stand before him in the righteousness of Christ with confidence. Romans 8.1 There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we all struggle with our weakness at times, thinking how unworthy we are to be in a relationship with God. The one who can and does do all he sets out says, you have been made right if you have come to me in faith and living with me as your true king. So there's encouragement for those who are in Christ. But there's also a message there for those who may not know Jesus. In the same way as we see in this encounter Jesus is set before them and says this is the king of kings. Here is your king. And that's not just something that's interesting. That's something that demands a response. You either do what the religious leaders say say away with him. I don't want someone else. I just want to do whatever I want to do. Or if you recognize that he is the king that he is to be. If it's right to give him honour and you have fallen short, you haven't Given him the honour of which he's due then this is a wonderful time to give thanks that he paid the price because we couldn't make ourselves right with God he paid that price so that we could be forgiven so that we could be in a right relationship with him that we could have eternal life and that we could be with him forever that's something I wish I could make a decision on people's behalf but I can't I can't make it on behalf of my kids can't make it on behalf of anyone but that is the challenge that is put out for those who do not know him here is your king what will you do with him? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you as we uh, reflect upon what Jesus has done. And to see the things, even though he's the almighty king, to see the, the mockery, the way he was beaten and he spat upon and he was insulted. Yet he didn't respond in, that, in the same way. In fact, he endured the cross. The book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him he endured the cross. Not so much that he enjoyed the process, but out of a deep-seated desire to bring about the salvation of lost sinners, he endured the cross for what it would achieve. That people could be brought into relationship with the God again, with the payment for sin paid in full, that all who would call upon Him in faith for the forgiveness of their sins, and who would turn to live for Him, that they would be brought in again to right relationship with God. Lord, we pray for us, even those who are who do know You, that as we call You Lord, which means Master that we would live in such a way that reflects that you generally are the one that we say you are the ultimate authority we belong to you we 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 want you to be first and foremost in all things that we would surrender our our rights of what i want uh, that we would live for the for the honor and glory of the name of jesus christ and we ask in his name amen